am Emily and I wish I knew more about how to let go of a shift after I finished. Hi, my name's Joseph and I wish when I started I'd learn more about how to communicate with patients, family and friends. Hi, my name's Lily and I wish I knew more about dressing selection for wound care. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. My name is Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. And today we're going to take a little bit of a tangent and delve into the world of nursing research. And for those of you who are new to nursing or those of you who uh, perhaps think, oh goodness, research has got nothing to to do with me. I used to feel the exact same way and decades later did a PhD. So we're going to ask you to stick with us because we have got a fantastic guest. We are welcoming the Professor of Nursing, Fiona Coyer, who actually is also the Chair of Nursing at the RB. and has a conjoint position with the School of Nursing at the Queensland University of Technology and with our hospital. So welcome, Fiona. Thank you very much, Liz and Jessie. Excellent. So we have a bit of a pattern and a habit of getting to know our guests, and I think your career path is going to be really interesting to a lot of people because it seems, (laughs) yeah, but it's it's so far between someone who's a couple of years into nursing and seeing a professor of nursing that's shaping the way that we practice through research um, and involvement in training as well. So I'd love to kind of hear the origin story and kind of how how you got to where you're at now. Sure. Thanks, Jesse. Um, Firstly, Liz, I'll just make a comment. You said we're going to take a different tangent today. I disagree. I don't think nurse research is a different tangent. I actually think it's so embedded in our clinical practice that it's essential to everything we do. So... I stand corrected and you're absolutely right. And I guess that's the whole point of today's topic, isn't it? Because previously it's like, oh, there's the researchers and here's the clinicians. And as we've progressed and learned so much more, we've realised how important it is to embed research into absolutely everything we do. So let's go back to your history. Yes, a little bit about me. So I'm my clinical background is in intensive care. I actually am one of the old guard, I suppose. I trained in the hospital-based system. And I think having completed, you know, a very thorough hospital-based course, I really felt like I knew exactly what to do, when to do it and how to do it, but I didn't know the why. And then I moved into intensive care, not for a love of intensive care, but because that was only the ward move that was available at the time, (laughs) which is often the way it goes with nursing. Um, But there I stayed and absolutely loved it. I moved over to the UK, um, did a little bit of travelling around, but based myself in the UK, and I ended up working there for 10 years. And that's probably where my initial foray into learning started and really enjoyed it. So I went back and I did a diploma in nursing and then I moved on straight from that um, into a Master's of Nursing Science and thoroughly enjoyed it. But I think what got me into research was, yes, my clinical career in ICU, we were able to question a lot and there's a lot going on in intensive care, obviously with a single patient but with a group of patients. But often when you have an interest or a passion, it, it's generated from something that really... I think sparks your um, 
your driver, your question in your clinical practice, or sometimes it's personal. And for me, it was personal. So um, my daughter was born in the UK, but she was a 26-weeker. So she was really tiny. Um, really she was tiny. about two pound three, or she made the magic kilo, so a bit fat for 26 weeks. <laughs> I dread to think what she would have been like full time. But she was ventilated for three days. She had artificial surfactant, which is a drug to sort of ease the lining of the lungs for those who don't know, and it stops pneumothoraces. So she was only on a ventilator for three days and then took 10 weeks to sort of fatten up in the NICU. But what struck me at that time was how involved in her care I was. Whereas working in the adult ICU at the time, there were probably limitations to when visitors or family members could come in and see the, the patient in the ICU. But as a mum with a baby in NICU, it was all about, you know, when can you come in? We'll save this for you to do. And my involvement was was huge. So I took that back to to my adult clinical practice. And that probably started me on studying a master's degree. And I did a dissertation in my master's and I actually looked at family involvement in the adult intensive care unit. And my when I came back home to Australia, um, I then had a, an education job, I suppose, and I was actually starting my PhD then, and my PhD was on family-focused intensive care nursing, which wasn't really very sexy at the time, I'd have to say. <laughs> but now, mm-hmm. post-COVID, has really come to the fore. And in fact, the last intensive care conference that I went to you know, this year, which was the first one for a couple of years, the focus was very much on family engagement and involvement. We've isolated them for so long in COVID. Let's bring them back into the fold. So that was really lovely to see it sort of come full circle. Wow. It is interesting having, you know, my background is obviously in paediatrics. We don't do anything without family members. And you come into adults and it it is quite a different approach, isn't Mm. it? I'd pick up on a couple of interesting things, which I think are really important for nurses identifying space to investigate. And what you are looking at is that kind of humanities and social and relational stuff. But also then there's, there's, stuff that we'll get into around clinical practice as we talk through to understand kind of how our our points of difference in nursing research are distinct from other areas of healthcare research, which I think that's a space that nurses early in their career don't often identify with. I think that's a really easy place for us to start with your number one thing we need to understand around nursing research, which is Learning never stops. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Sure. I, th- I think from also from the perspective in this podcast, I'm really talking about init- uh, investigator-initiated research. So this is, as a nurse, what, a question that I have about my clinical practice and how would I then progress that forward? So as a, a nurse researcher, um, learning does never stop. I do agree. Bachelor programs really give us a basic understanding of research processes and how we can undertake research, what's involved in research, looking at different research methodologies, for example. But when we're working as a clinical nurse, there's also many opportunities that we can actually take in our workplace to actually do either online programs or workplace-based programs to actually gather a little bit more information about research and how we can either become involved in a research project or lead a research project ourselves. And that's often some of the analytical methods that are involved in problem solving, for example. But nurses who are interested in research and to really lead uh, 
their research study and lead their research program overall really need to earn an advanced degree and that is often off-putting to some people and I do understand that. It's sometimes not as daunting as people think and we'll talk about that a little bit later but you do need a degree such as a Master's of Philosophy or a, a PhD. Yes, absolutely true. Generally required for researchers. I do agree with your point though, Jesse, about what's unique about nurse researchers is that we do have that we're at the forefront of patient care um, we deal with our clients, our patients, um, we're the ones who probably see them the most. And so we then have that unique ability to identify, well, what's an issue for this particular person? Might that be an issue for a larger number of people? How could we improve the quality of care that we deliver and make things better for yeah. the people that we care for? Yeah, and I think picking up on that, the um, we... We're also notoriously bad for tolerating and working around problems. Mm -hmm. So coming up with solutions rather than actually going, does this problem actually even need to exist? Why does it exist? Mm -hmm. And so those at a smaller level of, mm -hmm. of if we're going, oh, why the hell are we doing this? Yeah. Like hear that voice, use that as that trigger to actually start. And it might it's not necessarily go and start a PhD on that topic, mm -hmm. but those are those little niggling voices if you're finding that, hook is constantly there the avenues to do that maybe some quality improvement work and stepping up it's not just you have to go and enroll in a master's of philosophy or a phd as your first step in that and i think you hit that really well as this is a continuing journey that often happens over five ten plus years of doing increments of study as you go through and starting off small i think as you said is, is really pertinent because we can undertake quality improvement projects that are rigorously conducted and have very good, clear outcomes. And there's a big push at the moment or a big avenue to actually look at low-value-based care. What are we doing that we don't really need to, that isn't quite working, but we're, are we doing it out of habit, for example? And often people think about research as that new thing that you're doing. You know, what, what can you implement that's new and novel and different to improve patient care? But just as effective, you can actually remove a low value element to deliver effective patient care. And I do agree, start with audits, start with quality improvement, build slowly. And, you know, for those listening out there, it can feel like research is the things that the really smart people do and the rest of us just do the grunt work on the ground. And as someone, you know, if someone had said to me, you'll do a PhD as, an, as a new graduate or even the first 10 years of my career, I would have rolled around the floor laughing. But sometimes curiosity can get the better of you. Um, and so I think it's really important to keep an open mind about learning because usually research is sparked by curiosity isn't it absolutely yeah curiosity wanting to change practice seeing something that's done in a different way um, as I said with the example with my daughter so yeah everything plays a big part in the driver to undertake research and learning does never stop it continues on throughout your entire clinical career that's part of being a professional nurse can you please tell us your number two point sure thank you so my number two point, communication is key and central to everything we undertake in research. There are many moving parts in clinical research and many players that we actually have to communicate with. And sometimes in research, you're actually dealing with you know, not only patients, um, their family members or substitute decision makers, your fellow clinicians, the multidisciplinary team, your managers, the executive, the hierarchy. There's many, many people that you have to communicate with. So the need to communicate effectively and clearly is actually paramount. 
Sometimes, though, we don't actually have the skills when we first start out and we leave our bachelor programs. We don't have the skills of effective and efficient communication. But often for me, it's about treating people and talking to people as you would wish to be talked to or spoken to yourself. So informing people of decisions, keeping them in the loop, creating that team and building that team is absolutely essential in research. Research is very much done on a, a platform uh, according to a protocol. So you're following the protocol is your blueprint, if you like, for your research um, proposal or idea, how you're going to conduct your research, and you don't deviate from that. So everybody has to be on the same page and understand what's in that protocol. So communicating that is the key. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point for just overall change management and trying to articulate our ideas well. Mm-hmm. There's a framework that's been popularised um, and published by Laura Lengard that I love um, in the research and, and writing space of Problem Gap Hook, which I'm kind of catching on to. I was thinking simply about what's the problem? Do we actually know enough about the problem? If we think we do and it's a problem that's unique to us, is it or is there actually different perspectives on the problem that different members of the team and the patient and their families may have? Um, then... The, the gap is actually understanding now we have an idea of what the problem is. What is the gap in knowledge to fix that problem? What's out there? Um, so that's another form of communication and that might be actually going around and seeing if people have ideas to doing a literature review to those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And then the hook is really important and the often missed thing of going, why is this important to you, the person I'm trying to get to invest your time, energy, um, money in, um, but that that kind of elevator pitch framework is not something that we do a great job of in nursing in general, is it? We don't we don't state our value proposition well as a profession often. I think you took the words right out of my mouth when you were talking about um, that particular framework. I was thinking the elevator pitch, as I often say to my students um, and folk that I'm working with. If somebody asked you why what you're doing is important, you would give them the three-minute or the one-minute elevator pitch where you've got that absolute what's the issue, why is it a problem and how are we going to address it in very clear, succinct terms. And no, we don't learn to do that. It, it, is, it should be a learned skill. There are, I think, many workshops around that, you know, online forums where we could learn those particular skills, but it is something, yeah, we need to address. Um, and I think with communication as well, the other thing we need to think about is resilience. Because often with communication, particularly in research, you're putting yourself out there. You're, this is my idea, this is what I'm doing, this is how I'm going to research it. And you can be then open to feedback, be that positive or negative. Negative, And negative criticism can be hard to to take on board. So you do need a bit of resilience, particularly if you've got to rise up after setbacks. We've all had manuscripts that have been rejected from various journals Mm. or, you know, research grants that haven't got up. And you've put so much time and effort and love (laughs) and attention into them. You've lived them and then it's not successful. You do feel somewhat, you know, gutted. But I think part of being a researcher is you have to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, take a good look at the feedback, if I hope it was provided, and then move, take that forward and move on. I always think back to my first week in my PhD going over to a lecturer and they were saying, you know, PhD is 95% perseverance, 5% intelligence or something like that. And, you know, that's it. It's about hanging in there with setbacks and, you know, re-exploring the same question every day. I agree. I say it's a degree in resilience. Yeah. <laughs> 
Definitely. Can you talk us through number three, please? That's probably a good segue, um, Liz, when you just mentioned having a conversation with your PhD supervisor or advisor, because my, my next number three is find a good mentor, and good, I suppose, in inverted commas. But navigating the pathway to becoming a nurse researcher can be really difficult, and often clinical nurses on the floor, they really don't know where to start or who to approach. So seek out a mentor. Um, ask your fellow folk around the, the ward, you know, who's who in the zoo, so to speak, who works in this facility? Who's there? Are there professors of nursing that you could go and approach? Is there a department of nursing research or midwifery research, for example, as to where you could go? And seek some advice. So I think that's very important because the mentor can fundamentally shape your research career. And that, I suppose, links to the good or the bad mentor, Mm. the positive or the not so positive experience. And mentors aren't simply role models. They're very important people. Um, They assist and advise you in the pursuit of your goals. They can advise you in the, how to, you know, acquire the requisite technical skills, you know, data analysis, et cetera, um, and social skills even, which is what we were talking about before with communication for conducting your research. They'll challenge you and they'll bring you to a higher level of scientific achievement, which is exciting, and they'll help you navigate that difficult road of either you know doctoral research, for example, and postdoctoral education. Because once you have your PhD, that's really your training in research. It doesn't mean you know everything, you're then very much a novice or an early career researcher as you move forward. And a good mentor really helps you socialise into your community of practice. Who are the scientists, the, you know, the, the nurse researcher scientists in your area and they can link you up and make those, those connections. Does one mentor have all of those skills? Most definitely and most probably not. <laughs> yeah. And I, look, I love that whole idea of mentorship because, as I said, I was a reluctant researcher. I had lots of curiosities, but I thought I wouldn't be smart enough. I hadn't, I wasn't mathematically inclined, and the thought of even doing anything involving statistics just made me break out into a cold sweat. And I think this whole idea of mentorship is really important because what initially happened was there were other researchers who needed you know, my skill set as a social worker. And so I got on board with some research with doctors. And initially I would just offer advice, sit, my name wasn't on anything, I was just in the background. Then the next time someone wanted to write a paper and needed some help and so I got involved like, oh, okay, this is what a research paper looks like. Then, you know, you go for a grant. So there are lots of ways of dipping your toe into research, isn't it, without making the full-blown commitment so absolutely, Liz, I, I do agree. There's many, many ways you can get involved. Um, for example, I'm based in intensive care here at the Royal Brisbane because my clinical career has been intensive care and my research program is intensive care. But when I first started, the nursing leadership actually decided to make a commitment and they've allocated uh, a 0.6 FTE of a CN to actually work with me three days a week. And that's fantastic. That's a rotating position. So the CN's in that role three days a week for a year. We then, at the end of the year, we put out an EOI and somebody else applies. And I've had the pleasure of working, gosh, with about seven now wonderful clinical nurses who have just put their toe in that first step into the research area. And I'd have to, I think most of them have really enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't had any negative feedback. But yeah, there's many, many ways to get involved and that's one particular way. And if your clinical area doesn't do that, perhaps talk to your nursing leadership and see if there is a way you can do that and who you could link to. And that's a fantastic way to get engaged and talk to those folk over in the department and see what they're doing and how you could start. Yeah, I think there's a whole host of different 
things dependent on where you work. But uh, but uh, in Metro North Health in general, there's the clinician researcher internships mm. opportunities, and most most health services will have some form or another of mm. these things. So. Yeah. yeah, and I feel like we've we've already kind of stepped into number four, which is get involved. What does getting involved mean to you? To me, getting involved means that you are the person who drives your career. You make the decisions about yourself, what's good for yourself and where you want to go. So, But becoming a successful um, scientific leader in nursing research does require some distinct developmental steps and in, an inherent motivation. You have to be motivated to do this. You really do. It's not really – research isn't a nine-to-five job, I have to say. I don't want to put no. people off. <laughs> But it's not. <laughs> it's 9am to 5am, yeah. maybe. <laughs> no, I would say probably 24 sometimes, Jessie. Oh, yeah. giving me four hours off to yeah. eat and sleep. And the rewards aren't always financial either. You know, like True. You, you do a lot of it for the love and interest yeah. and w- – the interesting places it can take your career. Very, very true. Um, I think for nurses, though, we 100% of our role is providing clinical care when we're at the bedside. So it's very difficult to get some away time or downtime where you can explore a topic or an issue and find this out. So I think that's often the hard part in getting involved. Nurses see that very much as a stumbling block. Um, you raised the point before, Jesse, about the Metro North and QT nursing research in- internships, and that's a great way. Uh, excellent introductory avenue as well from a broader perspective where you can just get a bit of a taster for what research would be like. But outside of that, you could possibly, you know, volunteer for opportunities that are a bit outside your comfort zone. Many studies are run. You could start off being a a research assistant to see what the process is like um, to actually screen, um, recruit, enrol patients, data collect, that type of thing. Um, Don't compare yourself to others, oh, they're doing X and I can't do that, I'm doing Y. Every every piece of research is, is, I would argue, important, but also slightly different and everybody will have a different role to play. So find a path that's your best fit, that's based on your strengths. And sometimes it might not even be the clinical area you're working in. I, I was fortunate enough, I suppose, to be in ICU and have that passion for ICU. My initial work was in family-focused critical care nursing, but my work now is in skin integrity, and that really has applications well outside the ICU. It's Mm. hospital-wide, community-based. So I think those are the most important things, to sometimes think a little bit outside the square. Yeah, and what I had to learn was, you know, I still am not very good at mathematics or statistics, but when I do research now, I bring people on who have those skill set and talking is my thing. And so qualitative focus groups, interviewing people, hearing about their stories, doing thematic analysis, that's also a really important part of clinical nurse research as well, isn't it? Exactly. Um, Research is made up of a team of people who are exploring the issue and conducting the research. And you bring people on the team for their expert skills and the contribution that they'll make. So everybody's different. We have biostatisticians who love data and who will explore that data and mine the data for you to their heart's content, which is lovely. Um, But I think as a nurse researcher, if you're leading the research program, you have to have probably a good overall Mm. understanding of multiple methods. So understanding your statistics, yes, but that's your data analysis way. But 
and even your qualitative data analysis. But that's just one part of it. It's understanding the different methods and approaches you can take to addressing and trying to address a clinical problem. Yeah. I, th- I think in terms of coming back to that point of being deliberate about your career, it's very – nursing has somewhat – hospital nursing, I should preface, has somewhat of a conveyor belt that you're put on and progression often takes you away from the bedside wholly. Um Sometimes I think more and more, and possibly just the strain of pandemic has got people thinking more about chunking up and breaking up their own career and going creating portfolio careers rather than looking for all of the things in one job. For me, that was going to part-time clinical nursing and and taking what would be what is seen as a backward step, as a demotion, which doesn't feel like it when you're doing it. It felt very much like it fulfilled a hell of a lot more in my personal and professional life. Mm -hmm. But it's looking at actually there's not a right or wrong way to have your career, and if you and sometimes you just need to create that breathing room of not working full-time in a 100% service delivery role to create space to actually do these other things. And it might be um, taking on, like you said, a, a part-time research assistant role. Um, often it means losing a little bit of pay to start with. Um, so I guess that's the thing is there is sacrifices about it, but it's it's being deliberate and none of those sacrifices are usually irreversible. But also, Jesse, I don't think we've got it quite right yet. I've been saying for a number of years that when nurses complete a PhD, there is no pathway for them really. There's academia, mm. but a number of nurses don't want to move into academia and they don't want to teach and research. And that's absolutely fine understandable it's their choice what i think we do need very very clearly and quickly is a nurse clinician researcher pathway yeah Yeah. so those nurses who are doctorally prepared can then keep that bedside focus for a proportion of their working week and have a research focus as well for the Mm. remaining proportion and they're paid there's no dropping back in time or hours the two go together we've done that I suppose with some success in the nurse practitioner space where nurse practitioners are supposed, in inverted commas, to have some dedicated research time. And I think that works well, but that's the model we need to take with some of with some nurses who have actually gone on and, and undertaken a doctoral degree or a PhD and they want to remain clinically focused. Mm. And I think we need that pathway very much so it's not there. Yeah. Can you finish with your number five, please? Right. Well, the number five might come a little bit left of field, but it's learn your good clinical practice principles, so your GCPs. And possibly some of you who are listening might be thinking, what on earth is a GCP? I'm thinking that, to be honest. <laughs> so good Good practice um, clinical guidelines are really important to ensure that your trial or study is is functioning and is conducted in a safe manner and functions as expected. Good clinical practice principles were actually born out of the big pharmacological studies that are are conducted. And a lot of the courses that you can do are very pharmacy-focused or pharmacology-focused, but the principles are the same no matter what type or research you're conducting or what setting you're conducting it in. It's actually having a high-level understanding of, well, what are the ethical principles involved in your research? How do you appropriately screen patients, recruit them, enrol them? How should you collect data from patients? How should that be recorded? 
And the other thing in research is that if it's not documented, it didn't happen. Mm. So source document control in research is absolutely vital. So it's understanding all the principles of how to operationalise a research study, manage it, um, ensure that everything is documented so that if your study, for example, was audited, if an external person came in and said, Fiona, what have you been really doing for the last six months in study A? And I haven't got all of my documents lined up to say, this is my protocol, these are my participant information and consent forms, these are my data collection forms, my case report form, this is my screening log, this is you know mm. where I'm collecting data, etc. You really have to show all of that to an external auditor so that you're open to scrutiny, so that your research is conducted in an ethical and clear manner and at a high level. And that way you're working with a quality mindset and you're supporting a culture of quality in your work and your research program. Now, you can do a GCP course online, and they are free, the number are free, but also the hospital and Metro North do offer a number of places for GCP courses. And they're the principles that underpin how research is conducted. Very important. I've got to admit that I did do an online GCP course out of curiosity because I kept getting email blasts about it, um, but I've also had some involvement in sort of mid-career um, with with different research projects, not ever an investigator on a clinical trial, but I've been involved obviously in um, recruitment and looking after patients that are in clinical trials. The parallels, if they didn't come out naturally, which I think they will have from what you are saying, are clearly there for good clinical care as well as good research principles. We often don't think about it deliberately though when we're delivering clinical care. Is this like, is this ethical what we're doing? Is the record of what we're doing who are we leaving that behind for what what's the purpose of the things we're doing are we doing tick boxes for audit or are we doing clinical documentation to communicate the care and the progress for this patient so a lot of the principles i think are fundamentally identical to delivering excellent clinical care um, not just boxes to be ticked so i'd encourage anyone if you're curious to actually have a look for an online GCP training program because it's not a huge time impost to do it, um, but you'll definitely see some parallels with clinical practice. Yeah, just being able to think systematically, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I'm going to try and summarise all of that, Fiona, for our listeners. So five things that we all really need to learn about clinical research is number one, learning never stops. And I guess for me that's that whole point of, we should always be curious to know more, learn more and have it evidence-based. Number two is communication skills are key. And it, it seems in this podcast, it doesn't matter what we're talking about, communication is fundamental in healthcare. And that's the same story for research. Number three, find a good mentor. Don't feel like you've got to jump straight into research. Piggyback on the back of what someone else is doing and have a look and get a feel for it, almost like a try before you buy. Number four then is get involved and that's, you know, extends directly from that find a good mentor. You've got an interest in something, just ask to go to a couple of meetings, do a little bit of reading, ask around about some small part you can play without selling your soul and signing up for a PhD perhaps. <laughs> and number five, learn your good clinical practical principles and uh, they're the good as Jesse's just said, they're great principles even for life about making things systematic ethical and replicable. So the person who comes behind you knows exactly what's happened and, and can follow suit. So that's our summary. 
However, if people aren't familiar with nursing research, has it been a good career? It's been a wonderful career, Liz. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. It's challenging, don't get me wrong. There are many times when you think, oh my goodness, what have I done? But it's what gets me up in the morning. I love coming into the hospital. I love my conjoint appointment. And it's it's a brilliant way to have the best of both worlds, I think, having a, a clinical face and actually undertaking research. I love it. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at Liz Crow 2 and for me it's inject underscore orange we would absolutely love to hear your thoughts ideas or feedback thanks for listening to five things 